Good morning, everyone. We are here to discuss Parshas Mishpatim. A couple of uh, brief announcements. Uh, We are just now, um, I was just now informed of the passing of the mother of Doris Buzaglo. And uh, it's a sad day, obviously, um, in their family. And we share them and wish them a great comfort. Um, Her mother's name is Berta Batleya, and uh, the funeral is today. Uh, in addition to that, um, we are davening for Fuash Lema, um, for the son of one of our dear friends and alumni. Um, his name is Shmuel Yaakov Nasanal Ben Sara, and his surgery, apparently a serious surgery, should progress well. And uh, <clears throat> now we'll begin our class uh, just with those brief announcements. Actually, I should just mention one more housekeeping item uh, because unfortunately Frida Greenbaum could not join us today. Uh, so I want to mention that we have several events coming up. This evening we have a very interesting um, event here in Miami Beach in the neighborhood that's called Aqua. Uh, if anybody wants more information, you can look on the WhatsApp chat and it talks about it there. Uh, I'll be doing some Torah talking via presentation by Itzik Stern, returning from being a sniper in Gaza for 60 days. And obviously, that is something very interesting. And over the next uh, week or two, we have other events. So just uh, please don't get confused. We have different things going on, but we are still uh, maintaining our uh, normal shiurim. So... For today, I have chosen a rather difficult topic. Again, it's Parshas Mishpatim. The title for today's class is In Hashem's Hands, with a question mark. This month, the month of Shabbat, is dedicated by Frieda Greenbaum in memory of our beloved parents, Anna, Enya, and Max Matopinchas Filovitz, Holocaust survivors who on a daily basis taught their family unconditional love, honor, humility, respect for family and friends and community. Their commitment to Jewish traditions, open hearts, and home demonstrated their devotion to the survivor community, Eretz Israel, and served as an inspiration to their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And as we know, we are all benefiting from that inspiration, as Frida is generally the hostess of this class and spearheads many, many important initiatives and projects for the greater community here in South Florida and across the world. So... Parshas Mishpatim is very, very dense. It's filled with laws that actually the verses of this parsha serve as the basis for several tractates in the Talmud. And believe me when I tell you that that's a lot, a lot of very um, packed information uh, in the hundreds or thousands of pages of the Talmud that are really served by the sentences from our parsha. Having said that, I'm choosing not to focus on most of that. Um, that's uh, We've done some of that in the past, and there's definitely a tremendous amount to do there. I actually decided to tackle an extremely difficult paragraph in our parasha. It is really enigmatic, and it's chapter 23, sentences 20 through 33. Before we get into the sentences, we'll begin with our introduction, and as for so many of us, October 7th is so much in the forefront of our minds, I think it behooves us to continue to analyze the aftermath of those events. 
one of the major consequences of October 7th is all of the war, all of the uncertainty, all of the instability that we are facing, both as a Jewish nation, in the land of Israel, outside the land of Israel, and so much of the entire world. One of the major questions of October 7th is how. How did it happen that all the excellent intelligence sources and institutions of the Israeli nation fail to be prepared and fail to warn the armed forces and its citizens? How did it take so much time for appropriate military response and defense? Now, I recently had the privilege of spending a few hours with a very high level retired IDF general who actually served as the national security advisor to Israel for three years. And honestly, he too was perplexed. According to this general, he said that this is a story that is yet to unfold and that much investigation of these issues needs to happen. So right now, this is an untold story. Okay, putting all of that to the side for a moment from a totally different perspective, which is a Torah Judaism philosophical perspective, there is no doubt that the ongoing existence of our nation is due to Hashem's protection and clear demonstrations of Hashem's divine providence. We have literally myriad examples of Hashem's interventions to miraculously save our people on a large scale, on individual situations throughout the millennia. So the corollary is that when there is a clear absence of Hashem's protection, such as October 7th, we must ask that particular how question as well. How could it be that Hashem withheld his help and intervention on October 7th to such horrific and devastating effects? Simply put, why did this happen? Now, to be clear, we are not now asking the question, why did these bad things happen to these victims in such a horrible fashion? That's also, of course, a legitimate question, but for a different time. The question we are asking today is why on October 7th did we clearly experience a temporary withdrawal of Hashem's protection. In Parshish Mishpatim, we find this incredibly puzzling paragraph to which I referred a moment ago that speaks of Hashem changing the way in which Hashem chooses to relate with us. According to almost all the commentators to this paragraph, this change of relationship meant that Hashem would be, so to speak, much less patient with our nation and we would thus suffer greatly for our sins. And this development came about as a direct result of the major sin of the golden calf. So by way of introduction to these verses, it's important to bear in mind that this section of the Parsha, here in Parsha's Mishpatim, appears immediately following the major discussion of so many civil laws in so many different areas, the orphan and the widow, the laws of damages, borrowing, stealing, even murder is addressed, right? So many laws that are laid out for us here in Pashas Mishpat. And immediately after all this, we find this paragraph. And this paragraph 
is also just before another version of the giving of the Torah, at least according to Rashi, at the end of Parshas Mishpatim. So, in Parshas Yisro, we have the incredible Sinai event in the Ten Commandments. In Parshas Mishpatim, we have a follow-up of a major discussion of the civil laws that I just mentioned. Then comes this really puzzling paragraph that speaks of a change in relationship with Hashem, followed again by another version of the giving of the Torah. That's the just brief skeletal background to this paragraph. So now let's look at this very unusual chapter in our Parsha. Chapter 23, sentence 20. Says the Torah, behold, this is Hashem speaking, behold, I, Hashem, am going to send an angel in front of you to guard you on the road to bring you to the place that I prepared. Be careful with him, listen to his voice, do not rebel against him because he will not forgive your sins because my name is in his midst. Now, just let's address a simple philosophical point, very important, is that, of course, the angel is only representing Hashem. And because the name of Hashem is in the angel, it means that he is representing Hashem. And therefore, not listening to the angel really means not listening to Hashem. So you should surely listen to the angel, meaning to Hashem by way of the angel, and do everything that I, Hashem, will say, and I will attack your enemies, and I will um, vanquish your enemies, because my angel will go in front of you, and he will bring you to the land of the seven nations, Eretz Kena'an, and I will obliterate those nations. Don't bow to the idols of those nations. Don't do their idolatrous practices. Rather, instead, you shall destroy them, trample them, and break their monuments. And you should serve Hashem, your God, and God will bless your bread and your water. And I, Hashem, will remove disease from your midst. There will be no miscarrying in your land. You will live full, long lives. My awe, I will send in front of you. I will confuse the nation that you are approaching here in the land of Israel. And I will send these special wasps in front of you to destroy the, to, to, as you just say, to drive out these enemies. And over time, I will vanquish, remove, in other words, the enemies from your midst. And you will inherit the land, a very wide expanse of boundaries. And don't make any deals with those nations and don't allow them to dwell in your nation, lest they will be a stumbling block for you. Those are the 13 or so sentences. So the few major points that we should take out from this puzzling paragraph are, number one, Hashem declares that he will send an angel to protect us and bring us to Eretz Yisrael, the place that he has prepared, which refers to the Holy Temple. Number two, Hashem warns us to be exceedingly careful that we not rebel, as this angel is not disposed to forgiveness. That means he won't forgive us. We're going to discuss this a little bit more. Number three, if we appropriately adhere to Hashem, Hashem will attack and eliminate our enemies. Number four, we must be vigilant in not following the idolatry of the nations that we oust from Eretz Israel. Number five, when we serve Hashem, we will experience tremendous blessings in our food, our health, our wealth, our offspring, and our lifespans. Number six, Hashem will drive out our enemies before us in a manner that will allow us to comfortably settle Eretz Israel in its expansive boundaries. And finally, number seven, we must not make a covenant with our enemy nations in Eretz Israel, and we must not allow them to settle in Eretz Israel, lest 
they lead us astray. So Rashi does much to, you know, address some of the difficulties of this paragraph. And here's a little summary version of the Rashi commentary to this paragraph. This paragraph, says Rashi, is a prediction that the Jewish people will sin. And that as a result of this sinning, Hashem will not himself directly guide the Jewish people to Eretz Yisrael. Instead, Hashem will send an angel that as Hashem's messenger will be the one to guide us and help the Jewish nation to conquer its enemies and inherit Eretz Yisrael. This angel acting at Hashem's behest and on his behalf will not be forgiving of sin as this angel himself is not from the category of beings that sin and thus does not have much tolerance for it. And furthermore, says Rashi, he is only a messenger of Hashem and therefore on his own, this angel cannot decide to forgive the sins of the Jewish people that have rebelled against what Hashem wants. This prediction is threatened, according to Rashi, Nachmanides also agrees with this part, this prediction is threatened to be fulfilled after the sin of the golden calf, when Hashem says, listen, I'm not going to guide you directly. But Moshe, and this is a key point, Moshe successfully begs Hashem, he entreats Hashem to not carry out this threat of sending an angel instead to guide the Jewish people. Hashem acquiesces to Moshe's request. And so therefore in Moshe's lifetime, Hashem himself does, yes, directly guide the Jewish people. But in the time of Yehoshua, the nation is led by an angel. And there are many commentaries discuss this. Ramban does a beautiful job of explaining that when the angel comes to Yehoshua, he says, now I have come, meaning now I have come in fulfillment of this original threat. And from this point forward, uh, and it's really at the very, very beginning, even before the conquering of Jericho, that this angel comes and the Jewish people are, yes, eventually led to successfully taking Eretz Yisrael, but it's with the guidance of this angel. Um, and that's when the paragraph that we just discussed becomes fully effective. Now, just to quote a little bit of Rashi, and then we'll get to our questions, because hopefully you can all agree with me that this is an extremely interesting uh, paragraph in the Torah and also very puzzling. I'll articulate probably uh, some questions that you might have and definitely questions that I have. Uh, but here is a couple of quotes from Rashi. This angel will not pardon your trespass. He is not accustomed to sin, for he is of a class of beings who never sin, i.e. the angels. Besides, he is only a messenger and only carries out the mission entrusted to him. And therefore, he has no right to pardon you, because that's only Hashem's prerogative. What he can do, what the angel can do, is to kind of, to, so to speak, insist that we, the Jewish people, follow the commands of Hashem. And then also when the Torah says over here, for my name is in him, Hashem's name is in this angel, uh, basically what it means is my name is associated with this angel. And our rabbis have said that this is the angel that some people know as Matat, which is not the full pronunciation, we don't fully pronounce that name. And this is considered to be like the great angel of Hashem. And he also, that name has the numerical value of Shakai, which is Shin Dalit Yud. So in some fashion, this angel is a real representation of Hashem, but of course, it's really Hashem running the show. So it's all pretty confusing.
So here are questions. Number one, why is it necessary for Hashem to prognosticate the sinning of the Jewish people on the subsequent change in his guidance of them through an angel? In other words, whatever Hashem will do, Hashem will do. Why is the Torah going out of its way to tell you, hey, this is what's going to happen? Okay, whenever it happens, Hashem will do. Why is Hashem kind of letting it be known that this is what will happen? Number two, why is it needed for an angel to guide them and thereby the Jewish people will not attain forgiveness when they sin later because this angel is quote-unquote unforgiving? Hashem himself can also just as easily decide to be unforgiving. Right? You don't need an angel to say, oh, the angel's not forgiving you. Hashem could just simply say, I'm not forgiving you. So what, what exactly is the point of having this angel. Number three, this entire paragraph is very disconcerting in that it seems to indicate that we Jewish people are going to have, and as we mentioned in the time of Yeshua did have, an arm's length relationship with Hashem. How can we understand this when we know that we dive in directly to Hashem with zero intermediaries, right? Intermediaries would be considered idolatry. So, this paragraph is spelling out very clearly. It's a very big paragraph in the Torah, right in the middle of the two versions of the Ten Commandments, that uh, we're going to have an indirect relationship with Hashem, sort of an arm's length relationship. And there's going to be this angel. Like, how do we really understand that? Do we not, in our Shmona Esrei, daily stand directly in front of Hashem? Are we not speaking to Hashem directly in our prayers? That's the third question. And question number four, the blessings that follow our adherence to this type of relationship with Hashem, meaning the angel comes and we, God willing, do listen and don't rebel. So there are tons of really seemingly stellar blessings that follow. Um, very long lifespans is, is a pretty fantastic blessing. Blessing in all of our food and, and property, that's pretty fantastic. Uh, the vanquishing of our enemies, that's we would all love to see that. So it kind of sounds like that's sort of wonderful. So is there a more ideal relationship or is this the ideal relationship? According to Rashi, this only gets instigated, instigated when there is sin, but it would seem that that really shouldn't happen. So how are we supposed to understand what the net result is of what we're trying to achieve? Are we trying to achieve a relationship with Hashem with his direct guidance and no angel? Or is it okay and maybe perfectly fine to have a relationship with Hashem where the angel, so to speak, is more directly guiding us? Okay, he's not so forgiving, but as long as we own up to what we're supposed to do, then everything is hunky-dory. Is that what we're supposed to take out from this paragraph? Because that's kind of what it sounds like, because that's how the paragraph concludes. So I'd like to begin, uh, for, let me just, you know, because they're kind of heavy questions, I'll just recap them. Why is it necessary for Hashem to predict this different kind of relationship with the Jewish people that involves an angel and as Parashi, that's based on sin? If Hashem decides to do that, Hashem decides to do that. Why does Hashem need to talk about it in advance? And it even gets confusing because it doesn't even really happen when the Jewish people first sin because Moshe is able to stave it off. So why, why is the Torah bothering to predict it? Number two, what is the idea that there's an angel, Hashem himself, can say, listen, I don't want to forgive you, so I'm not going to forgive you, but you don't need an angel to not forgive. Number three, this entire paragraph is really hard to understand because it sounds like our relationship with Hashem is somehow not direct, and that's just not true. God forbid 
heaven for friend, we know that we daven directly to Hashem. We say, Baruch blessed are you, Hashem. We don't talk to someone else to talk to Hashem on our behalf. And then finally, it seems like it ends pretty well, even in this paradigm where the angel is uh, guiding us as long as we adhere. So is there anything wrong with that? Okay. So I'd like to begin by pointing out that it's evidenced in many, many places that Hashem's main focus in building a relationship with a person is not really with an individual. That means to say that Hashem's fulfillment in creation of having a relationship with mankind is not with one person, it's not with 10 people, it's with a nation. Right? In other words, if we don't have an entire nation standing at Sinai saying, we will do and we will listen and accept the Ten Commandments and all of its implications, then Hashem is really not satisfied, so to speak, so to speak, with his creation and his intention in building a creation. Now, one of the places that we see this uh, amazingly is that according to Rashi and the Gemara, when the Jewish people sin in the desert in a significant fashion, at the sin of the spies, Hashem doesn't communicate with Moshe for almost 38 years in the same manner any longer because the whole purpose in Hashem's communication with Moshe is in order to have a relationship with the entire people. It's not because, hey, Moshe is such a great guy, Hashem loves Moshe, and you know, let's let let let's let's just have a relationship, you and me, Moshe. Even when, right, to add to this point, even when. Hashem threatens to destroy the Jewish people. He doesn't say, listen, Moshe, you and me and your family will be fine. He says, I'll build you into a nation. Right? So it's very clear that in order for Hashem to have a relationship, that is the relationship that Hashem, so to speak, is seeking, it has to be with a nation. It's not with an individual. So Hashem directly guiding the Jewish people means that as a collective entity, as a nation, we are succeeding or have succeeded in achieving a genuinely close and intimate relationship with Hashem. That means our, what my father likes to call the corporate identity of the Jewish people is actualized. That means that we have a Jewish nation of which Hashem is proud, of which we as a people can be proud, and therefore, Hashem is directly leading us. Now, it's interesting that with all the failings that we have as a Jewish nation, in Parshas Yisro and in Parshas Mishpatim, we have tremendous success. We know that at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people coalesced into one nation. We know that at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people said, we will do and we will listen. We know that prior to the sin of the golden calf, the Jewish people achieved a tremendous high level of, of, of prophecy at Mount Sinai, and therefore a level of immortality, at least according to one opinion in the Talmud. And so therefore, at this moment in Jewish history, the Jewish people are at an incredibly developed, high-level relationship, and as a nation, they've achieved this, right? So that means they're not fighting with one another, they bonded and unified as one nation. They are not doing things like, for example, um, seemingly uh, at this point, uh, incorrectly or improperly with the month. That's before Mount Sinai. 
So in this brief period in history, from the time that the Jewish people arrive at Sinai until the golden calf, the Jewish people are at a supremely high level. Now, let me just, before I explain what's happening in the Parsha, just kind of build a parallel of what we mean by a collective identity. A parallel in human relationships might be where a large group of people unify, bond, share deep, meaningful experiences or conversations as a large team or a group. Now, this type of situation often occurs at times of great difficulty where people galvanize and get ready for war and come together and fight as a team, as we've recently been seeing happening with our own nation and what's happened since October 7th. Also, this occurs in the times of natural disasters. People who have to kind of unify and help each other to survive through a, a hurricane or other, uh, God forbid, uh, types of natural disasters, very often there's a very clear identity of unity that emerges where people become extremely effective. They become extremely caring for one another. They're able to synergize and accomplish as a large group. That's what I mean by a collective entity and identity of success, right? <laughs> uh, a more positive parallel, like leaving aside uh, wars and natural disasters would be in achieving a great victory, such as a team, for example, winning a national championship, or maybe a team of scientists achieving <clears throat> a Nobel prize, or a company that innovates and creates a new product that helps mankind, right? That would be a collection of energies that unify into a tremendous achievement that becomes an expression of one for an entire group, right? And another possibility would, let's, let's say, be a community getting together and building a brand new building, a community project or institution. So in terms of our Jewish people, collective relationship with Hashem in the desert, some examples that we can clearly see are the Jewish people singing the song at the Red Sea. Everybody sang together. Everybody experienced prophecy and vision of Hashem at the Red Sea together. Whatever their fears were a moment ago, now they have committed to Hashem and they believe in Hashem and they see the salvation of Hashem. Obviously, the experience of Mount Sinai, right? And even after that, we have the building of the tabernacle. These would be tremendous expressions of unity type achievement based on everybody being able to work together and become synergistic. Now, what I believe is happening here, smack in the middle of all this success, is Hashem is innovating a critically important structure for an eventuality where the collective Jewish nation is not achieving an intimate connection and relationship with Hashem. This structure is the appointment of the angel that will facilitate the ongoing possibility of an eventual intimacy relationship, but it exists when the Jewish people are not functioning in the way that the Jewish nation should function. And this is indeed a major kindness of Hashem to build this structure into the fabric of our relationship with it. This is not unlike in a marriage where people decide you know what, we're not getting along so well together. 
We can't really resolve our difficulties. Let's continue our lives together and come back and hopefully have a better conversation at another time. Instead of, well, this is not working, let's just end it, right? We have to be able to weather imperfection in terms of the human experience, which is what Hashem amazingly does for us at the height of our success. At the height of our success as a nation, here in Parshish Mishpatim, after Mount Sinai event, after telling us all the laws that will really help us to achieve the perfection as a nation that Hashem wants for us to achieve, so that He, Hashem, can have a relationship with our entire nation, Hashem also says, by the way, when this is not all working out so well, there is a system in place where we can still maintain a relationship with him, we'll need to be very careful because in a moment when Hashem is more distant from us, it's also a dangerous time as we're going to be talking about in a second. But nonetheless, Hashem is committed to allowing a non-intimate existence with us so that we can yet achieve in the future a much closer and more intimate relationship with him. So in this arm's length arrangement with his nation, Hashem will be, so to speak, more patient with certain types of sins that we have, because you know what? He's not looking so closely. Um, this is a little bit like, my friend Joseph Rackham gave me this beautiful example today. It's a little bit like a policeman not following you and watching if you're going one, five or 10 or 15 miles over the speed limit. Whereas he might be sitting there with a the radar far away where you don't see him, and you might be going one, five or 10 miles over the speed limit, but he's not necessarily going to react. Now, when you start getting dangerous and 15, 20, 25 miles over the speed limit, so to speak, from a distance, then there will be a reaction. So the idea here is <clears throat> that when we are not as intimately connected with Hashem, we do have a more distant relationship with Hashem, but our sins are not as chutzpahdik on an individual level. They're just not as terrible because it's not as, so to speak, a strong of a slap in the face. However, what is critical is that as a nation, we never forget our Jewish identity, our Jewish purpose, and the fact that what we are trying to do is to eventually get to a much closer intimate relationship with him. The purpose of the angel, as the first sentence here says, is in order to bring you to the place that I prepared. And that is not just general Eretz Israel. that's actually Beis Hamikdash. That's actually Kodesh HaKadashi. That's actually the goal is to get to the most intimate level of relationship with Hashem. But when we forget our Jewish collective identity, the way that we're supposed to be supporting each other and helping each other towards that goal of building a much greater collective relationship with Hashem, we will not have Hashem's protection. Because He's not intimately guiding us. He is dealing with us at an arm's length relationship. And the main interest of Hashem is in us having that collective relationship with him. I'd mentioned this before, but I, I think it bears repeating. I remember hearing from Rav Yaakov Weinberg many, many decades ago, at least at this point, it's, uh, I shouldn't say many, many decades, many, many years, it's uh, three or four decades ago, 
that he said the main merit of the Jewish people's miracles in the land of Israel, he was referring to the Yom Kippur War, the Six-Day War, the War of Independence, and many other things that happened along the way, was the refrain that the Jewish nation as a whole would collectively say and believe, Am Yisrael Chai. Am Yisrael Chai. That's the way Hashem looks at us. Hashem looks at us as we have a permanence. Now, here we should incorporate what we spoke about last week, which is Mount Sinai creates a collective consciousness of the Jewish people that Hashem exists, the Torah is real, Eretz Yisrael is ours, and today we're adding, and the goal is for all of us to achieve an intimate collective relationship with Hashem. That's the goal. That's what Hashem is choosing to relate to. Hashem gives us the Torah when we are unified, when we all say in one voice, Na'asa or Na'asa That's when Hashem is most connected with us. And that's when bad things simply will not happen to us. And that's when eventually we can achieve immortality, literal immortality. That's the ultimate goal. It's not so easy to always live on that level. And the Jewish people at the time of the sin of the golden calf were definitely balking at that level of closeness and intimacy with Hashem. They were choosing to set up an, a literal intermediary, God forbid, called the golden calf. As a nation, as a nation, we fail at the golden calf. Not just some of us, not some of us, uh, you know, choosing God forbid to intermarry or not observe other commandments of the Torah. But as a nation, we were making a declaration to step away, step back from our relationship of intimacy with Hashem. That could lead, should lead to devastation, and certainly it should lead to an arm's length relationship with Hashem at best. Moshe, in his intervention, was able to stave that off until the Jewish people would enter the land of Israel at the time of Yoshua. But if we look at October 7th, what's really happened until October 7th is a collective disappointment, a collective relinquishing of our special nationhood. When we can fight publicly about political reform in the land of Israel, or we can agree that certain factions of our people will never get along, we are giving up on the collective unity of our people, and we are giving up, therefore, on achieving a collective, intimate relationship with Hashem. We can never give up on that. And when that happens, there's going to be very little forgiveness, the Torah tells us. And what will happen is we're going to be reminded that we are a unique nation. And no matter how much people want to assimilate, a Jew is a Jew, because we do stand apart as different from the rest of the world because of our collective intimate knowledge of Hashem's existence and that the Torah is true and that our ultimate goal is not Am Yisrael Chai, meaning that we should never be quashed. It's Am Yisrael Chai, we should become immortal Chai, not just survive because of our close relationship with Hashem. We are Am Yisrael Chai, nothing to do with us, only to do with Hashem. That's why we are Am Yisrael Chai. It's Part of the miraculous guidance that Hashem causes for our people and that we will never be destroyed. That is true. But it's not because of us. It's because of Hashem guiding us to that and Hashem's ultimate protection. 
But what happens is, is that we definitely forget our collective specialness when we fight with each other, when we draw lines, when we don't treat each other with respect. Instead, we treat each other with disdain or we throw up our hands and we say we can never talk to the other side. That is a direct rejection of everything that is Hashem's true interest in us as a people. Hashem's true interest in us as a people is not with any one individual, including Moshe Rabbeinu himself. It's only with us as a collective nation. Now, one of the truths of our people is that when we do synergize and we do work together, we achieve unbelievable results. There is no nation like the Jewish people in the way that when they organize, when they work together, the results are truly awe-inspiring. It's all part of our unique heritage from our forefathers, the unique blessings from Hashem. And really because we have a deep visceral connection with Hashem, so there's something just magical, call it spiritual, call it infinite, whatever you want to call it, that just emerges from our collective oneness. But when we forget that, Hashem has very little patience. That's when the Torah says, if you're not going to inhabit Eretz Yisrael by yourselves, if you're, God forbid, going to leave yourselves open to following in the ways of other nations, you will suffer. You will lose. Because the only way for Hashem's fulfillment and creation to be achieved is when the Jewish people are unified and when the Jewish people are representing Hashem, when the Jewish people themselves recognize that the name of Hashem is intimately associated with the Jewish people, Israel, Kale, right? We ourselves have the name of Hashem in us. That's many other sentences in the Torah that I don't, I don't need to get into now. When we forget that about our nation, Hashem's special protection is gone because that cannot continue. We can have an arm's length relationship with Hashem as long as we ourselves are unified and Hashem will provide that eventually we'll get to the base of Mikdash, which includes the Mashiach, etc. But when we ourselves lose our collective identity, which is the collective consciousness of the truth of Hashem's existence, the infinity of the Jewish people, the purpose that we have to be unified in order for Hashem to have the most intimate relationship with us, His protection can and will be suspended. That is what will happen. And that is coming exactly at the time that we need to hear it in the Torah, which is that we want to be at this level of Mount Sinai, of the Red Sea, of eventually building a Mishkan. But, you know, that's not easy to maintain all the time. And so, therefore, the most practical thing I think that can come out of this message from the Parsha is working on our relationships with one another working on respecting each other, work on working together, and work on the fact that it's only when we collectively are seeking harmony with each other and are proud of who we are as a people and none understand our own potential and greatness that then we have this unique relationship with Hashem, which ultimately will become so close and intimate with Hashem that we will never suffer a lack of His protection. And so what we really have to do is work on Parshas Mishpatim. Parshas Mishpatim tells us of our responsibility for each other, of 
a Jewish slave, which ultimately means taking responsibility for our fellow Jew when he is down and really building him up. I'm not going to go into it now to explain it, but that's very much what that parasha is about. Being extremely careful with each other's property and not treating it like, you know what, uh, the, you know, he doesn't need the, he doesn't need it that much. It, it doesn't matter so much. We have to work on these interpersonal laws of in order to really be able to be a collective nation that can synergize together, of which we can all be proud, and then Hashem can have a relationship with us. And that's why one of the very um, powerful passages in the parsha talk about, God forbid, abusing an orphan or a widow, and the tremendous suffering that comes if we are not careful to not abuse or take advantage of the downtrodden. In halacha, we hold that that does not only apply to an orphan or a widow, it actually applies to every single person, any person that you know that is suffering emotional pain or some history that they've had that are, are, are putting them at a disadvantage and we don't care for them properly. Instead, God forbid, we treat them callously or even worse, uh, take advantage of their, of their vulnerability. We suffer tremendously because of, because of that. It's also why we have a very important commandment in our parasha to lend money interest-free to our fellow Jews. That's the kind of commitment that we have to have to each other. You know, for most people, lending people money without interest is crazy, right? That's, the, that's, that's, why would I hurt myself to help someone else? I could use the money. I could make money. I want the security, right? No, that's the way we have to be building up our Jewish nation. Uh, if somebody's struggling along the road and his packages are falling off, we don't get to look away. Somebody's lost object in the, in the road, we don't get to look away. That's not the way to build the oneness. Other nations think that uh, maybe it's an act of saintliness if you do that. In Judaism, it's a sin to not lend without interest. It's a sin to not return a lost object. It's a sin to not help a person whose animal is suffering under the weight of its packages. Even our enemy. <laughs> Dr. Rothman is pointing out even our enemy. That really, the enemy, uh, yeah, we have to understand what that means. Uh, Okay, yes, yes, that's, that's the way the Torah phrases it. That's a good point. Uh, so the point is that this is all about appreciating our collective nationhood because that's the only way to truly achieve intimate relationship with Hashem. So what this paragraph is telling us is that Hashem will provide for our Jewish people being imperfect. But there's almost zero tolerance for our Jewish people to not appreciate one another and not be working towards our collective oneness. Let's take questions or comments, either in the room or anywhere else. So, so it's, it's more important, like, was, wasn't there a time in the Jewish history, I forget now, when like, the Jewish people were sinning left and right, but they were coming over wars, and like, like in the times of the, the Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Begelman is pointing out is that there have been times in Jewish history that when we collectively unify, even if we're not really following the ways of Hashem, I need to do some research on that. Um, I really should have done that before, that we still achieve success. Obviously, that's not the goal, but Hashem still allows for us to achieve success. And we know this principle of unity is extremely important um, in general, but it's even more so for the Jewish people. In general, we find it, for example, by the generation of the dispersion 
who was looking to get along with each other versus the generation of the flood that were looking to hurt each other. So the generation of the flood was completely destroyed, whereas the generation of dispersion uh, was um, just, you know, allowed to, to survive, but then they were, were spread to all parts of the, of the, of the world. Yeah, so something why, along why those lines. Why doesn't it talk about that here, about, about how important it is to unify? So I'm saying Parshish Mishpatim, once the, laying out Parshish Mishpatim is really telling us about the importance of how we work together and how careful we have to be with each other. Not so much with the Asimshan. Right, correct, correct, exactly right. So we have a different problem vis-a-vis and Hashem, which is idolatry of the nations of the land of Israel, but it's not about the general laws of Man to Hashem, it's really the laws of man to man. It says that if we let the other nations lead us astray, Hashem won't be with us. But that that has nothing to do with unity. No. So in the land of Israel, it's especially a problem because what's really going to happen is that then then we become disunified. In the land of Israel, that that itself is a particular problem. No, no, but we were we were becoming disunified. Right, but I'm saying it's not that. Anything anybody was going astray with the with the with the nation, our nation. Well, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, That's definitely assimilation was a was is a major issue, and you know, secular values is a major issue for sure. Yeah, that does prevent our unity as well. Yes, Mrs. Kainoff. Um, so, this. Dr. Robbins, was it that touched on an interesting point? It's kind of in the news now because. The architect of October 7th, who was in Jewish custody and at the time was operated for a brain tumor and subsequently was released and then became the architect of this horrible terror. Uh, It seems that his sister or his close relative was recently in a Jewish hospital and there was some concern about the child giving processes or or the baby Uh or something. And there was something about how the Jewish nation, Israel, was expending its resources to save her and her child. And Doc got a few negative comments. And I didn't comment negatively, but my brain was kind of going in a negative direction. So is there, if there, um, if there is something actually about taking care of your enemies, loving your enemies, uh, doing for your enemies, then I'll just have to add that to the list of things I have to work on. The list is very long, but what is there something, what is that? I I actually, I'm not really familiar with that. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Okay. Again, and very broadly, I, you know, Yawa Sinwar, whatever his name is, the architect of October 7th. He was, he was in, um, Israeli custody for many years. At the time, it was determined that he had a brain tumor. They operated on him. He got fine. They released him, and now he became our horrible enemy and the architect of October 7th. It seems now he has, I I think it's a sister. She had some kind of complication with childbearing. Uh, She gave birth. She was had complications or she or maybe she or the baby or both had complications. She is presently being treated at an Israeli hospital. She's Hmm. she's presently in Israeli care. Hmm. Um, Again, so like, you know, again, I had a negative impulse when I heard that. I had, you know, I have so many negative impulses, but that just one like that just was that was in the news. And it just touched upon something that somebody mentioned. 
So. Yeah. So definitely that's a hard one. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated question. How do we deal with uh, relatives of Hitler and Marshmallow? Right. Example. Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, to me, that's not so. And add that to the list of things that I don't know. It's a long list. Yeah. Okay. So, but I will think right. of that. Okay. Thank you so much. And thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Class that answered many, thank many questions. And thank of you course, so as more questions are answered, more questions get asked. And this is 120 mit gesund. Amen. That's why we <laughs> learned. Amen. Same to you. Thank you. Okay. Well, doesn't that depend if she's an evil person or not? Who cares if she's the sister of a. Uh, of uh, Yaya Sinawar. She's an evil yeah. person, then you know. Who cares if it's the sister of Hitler? She's not, a, if she's an individual, it depends on who she is. Yeah, I, I think what, I think what's what's difficult is A, that's hard to figure out, and B, is what kind of influence that person is going to have. In, in other words, what kind of um, uh, pressure, you know, can be exerted because of that situation, and should it be exerted? You know, and like, should you say, listen, give me 50 hostages, here's your sister. You know, it's a, it's a, that's a, it's a pretty complicated uh, thing. I, I don't know much about it. It's a pretty hard uh, situation to deal with. But you're right that, you know, on the face of it, you know, each person should be judged as an individual. But what's happened in, you know, this war and many other wars, it's very hard to ascertain who is the enemy and who is the, the, the innocent. And so it just gets even more complicated the closer it gets to what seems to be the architects of the evil. Um, uh, so Ariel is pointing out that we do have people um, even like related, like yeah, this is a famous example that he's mentioning. I'm sure some of you saw him speaking even early on that the son of the Hamas founder, Mohammed Dif, turned publicly against Hamas and now supports Israel. Right? So, you know, it's not black and white. It's definitely difficult. Okay, everyone. They just had, I'm just saying they just had an article about the guy, I think, Indian Magazine about Goring, Gehring, you know, Herman Goering's brother who saved Jews during the war and people didn't even know about it. It's anti-Nazi. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, obviously, it's just, it's just hard. One of the real hard things in general is that we're, we're so much not in the know. You know, it's just hard, hard to know things uh, from, from our vantage point. We're not there. We don't really know what's going on. Uh, but they're from not, but they're not asking Shilas anyway. I mean, if it, it's not it's not something to wrap your head around. They're not going to go to a Rav and ask a Shiloh. So the Israelis have this cockamamie idea of their moral code, which is not the Torah's moral code meant time. They go overboard. <laughs> Torah, yeah. For example, Torah Aneshek. Ooh, they made this up, Torah Aneshek. You know, that, though you got to go and do a bunch of stuff that halakhically you don't have to do. That's their problem because they don't follow the Torah. That's how they get all warped brains when it comes to morality. <laughs> I think I think that there's a lot of different people, and I wouldn't maybe, maybe just say that's everyone, but yeah, definitely we we don't have a system where that's being led all the time by Torah. There's no question about that. That's not the system. Uh, hopefully, some people are trying. You know. Okay, to be continued, everyone. Sorry. Thank you, Rabbi Akiva. Thank you all. Thank you. Did you get everything?